This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Damien Cave, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, what an interesting book. Let me introduce you. Damien has worked for the New York Times since 2004 and in 2017 moved to Sydney with his family to become New York Times Australian Bureau Chief. I've got to tell you on a personal note, I've been very excited about that. Well, I was at the time. I'm a subscriber. Um, It is my go-to just so you know. Thank you. Thank you. He previously reported from Mexico City and Baghdad. And in 2008, Damien and his wife, Diana, were finalists for the Pulitzer Prize in international reporting for their coverage of the Iraq war. His latest book, Into the Rip, is about how we approach risk and how that has affected his mindset. And it's also really a book, I guess, in a way where um, you're comparing your experience of being an American to us being an Australian, I guess. Yes, that's correct. All right, talk to me about the book. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting you picked up already on that sort of comparison of uh, American and Australian. And I I think, you know, I started the book with the idea in mind of, you know, what could be learned from Australia? What have I learned from Australia? And it starts in part with the idea of me not knowing that there would be so much for me to learn here. Um, You know, I came in, I think, like a lot of Americans, assuming a certain degree of similarity, probably underestimating the differences between the two cultures, and quite quickly learned that they are very, very distinct places, which is a wonderful thing to discover as a writer and as a correspondent. Let me tell you this. I absolutely agree with you there because um, I'm a constant visitor to the US. Well, I was pre-COVID. I used to house swap with a family in New York once a year and spend two or three weeks there. But also I have friends in San Francisco. So I have taken a sabbatical there. I I used to visit there at least once or twice a year. And what I discovered very early on, so I've been doing this for, for, I think, 15 or 20 years, is that the only similarity is that we might speak a similar language. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Similar, not even the same. No. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. But I think at at a really core level, one of the most distinct differences is the way that we view individualism and the way that we sort of self-organize as societies. Um, And for me, risk and my experience with my children with the ocean here was really a way to explore those differences. And, you know, again, differences that I don't think I really fully grasped until I got here. And so, you know, it's it's, it's a parenting book. It's a book of middle-aged transformation. It's a book of learning to let go of one country and choose another way to live you know, there's struggle, there's pain. And I hope that there's kind of a lot of hope about it too. I I really feel grateful to Australia for the experience that I've had here. One of the fundamental differences, and you can disagree here, but from my experience with Americans versus Australians is the idea of freedom. I feel that Americans' idea of freedom is about themselves. 
and their own self-freedom. Whereas I think here we have a more community-based view of freedom. An example of that is healthcare. Absolutely. I mean, there there are many examples. Healthcare is one. Guns is another. Oh, yeah. I I think the response to COVID is a third. Um, And I do think that's distinctly the case. I, I had a really interesting conversation recently with someone who recently wrote a book about the history of quarantine. And we were talking about how, you know, for Americans, they're American, but they did a bunch of research in Australia. You know, there's a sense of a single autonomous being, that that's the guiding principle of American life. And for Australians, it's actually more of an epidemiological view, which is that my actions are intimately connected to the actions of others. And and that this is how the society is organized. Now, I think you can argue that that's fading in Australia somewhat, that it's becoming Americanized. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of heartbreaking to me as someone who's Mm -hmm. a newcomer to this and really come to appreciate it. But I think that's a really fundamental difference. And it shows up in the data. It shows up in one-on-one interactions. It shows up you know, all over the country, in my experience. Mm. I mean, I think your view um, of Australia in the book is, is really lovely. And it seems to me that you're quite taken by the country, which is fantastic, because it would be worse the other way. However, <laughs> your view of Australia is not my view of Australia, because I, I'm, you know, my parents were Lebanese. They immigrated to the country. I mean, I didn't see the ocean for years, you know, until I was probably in primary school, right? And so I tended to think with the book that your view was coming from a certain part of Australia, you know, and you can't deny that it's privilege, it's affluence, it's white. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting because that's definitely an issue that, you know, I anticipated sort of running into, but but there are some facts that you, you have, you can't sort of deny. One is that Australians as a majority, live closer to the ocean than almost any other society of this size and economy of this size. So 40% of the world lives within 100 kilometers of the ocean. 85% of Australians live within 50 kilometers of the ocean. So whether or not you go to the ocean, you know, in primary school, there's lots of people I know in the United States who don't go to the ocean maybe until they're adults. So, you know, what you would consider, well, it's not, you know, it's only a certain class of Australians who spend this much time at the ocean. And while that's true, I think there's also an argument to be made that as a society, the ocean is more accessible and more a part of people's lives in Australia than in maybe any country or any democracy of similar size. Um, So that's the first point I would make. The second point I would make is that it's not just the ocean that is a reflection of Australia's approach to risk and Australia's collectivist spirit. You know, I saw it during the bushfires, you know, in in the interior of the country. I mean, volunteer firefighting, it's the largest volunteer firefighting organization in the world. And it's a reflection of that same approach to sort of throwing yourself into risk and doing it with your mates or with your brothers or your sisters. And it's not just about the ocean. You know, I've seen it in sports as well. I've seen it in the way that people in communities parent all over the country. And so, you know, while I think the ocean for me was a window into this world because it was foreign to me, I was not a swimmer. Uh, and so for me, it was a reflection of the changes that I needed to go through. I don't think by any means that the values and the themes that I bring out in the book are specific only to the ocean. It just happens to be that I ended up in a place that was near the ocean and my kids were thrown into nippers early on. And that was sort of the vehicle for me. Mm. But, I mean, there are so few people um, in this country that actually do nippers. And you talk about that quite, you know, there's a couple of chapters devoted to nippers and talking about how that, in a way, creates the Australian idea of risk. And and I I do agree. I think what what I'm I'm sort of arguing is that there's a a pocket of society, there are institutions like sort of life-saving 
that actually hold a really healthy model for how to deal with risk that Australians and the world could learn from. And that Australians tend to take for granted or not think is that significant. But you could build, I believe, a much stronger, better, healthier Australia if you took some of the values that are, are in this small institution of nippers and surf lifesaving and tried to apply them more broadly. So that's a bit of what I'm trying to argue is that some of the best of Australia can be found in some of these things that Australians just take for granted and don't really even notice is that significant. Mm -hmm. No, I, I mean, I get the ocean is really compelling. I love it. Actually, a couple of years ago, uh, one of my American friends came over and I took him to One Day Beach. Do you know, it was so foreign to him that he couldn't ta even take his shoes and socks off and walk in the sand. <laughs> yeah, that's like me in the book. I was constantly walking around yeah. in like jeans and boots in places where I yes. shouldn't have had shoes on at all. That's so, right. Yeah, no, I, I can um, relate to that. <laughs> one of the funniest things, and I've got a photo of it because it just was so meaningful to me at the time. I was in San Francisco one January and and my friend there said let's take the kids and go to the beach and I'm like it's freezing and she's like well, what does it matter and then when I got there there's all these people on the beach with you know coats on boots on I had never ever seen that it was so foreign to me but you know yeah. just enjoying it just as much though no I think that's the thing I think people are drawn to it whether you know it's um you know I mean even now in the midst of when there are lockdowns more and more people get in the water and you know there, there's something I think that we crave in, in the water, and it serves the purpose that not just the water serves, a mountain or, you know, a, a place with a view can do the same thing, which is basically just to put our humanity in perspective, you know, and to keep us, and this is frankly something I think Americans should probably use more of, <laughs> is to, to keep us a little bit more humble and force us to kind of actually interact with others to deal with challenges. And so, you know, the ocean is one example of many, I think, where that comes out. Mm. So I want to talk a little bit about Australia in a way. I mean, I get I feel really despondent sometimes. I feel just even recently with the abortion debate in the US. I mean, it's just it's a terrible situation. But I think I think and I've said this before, I think abortion is to Americans what refugees are to Australia. I think that every country is capable of hatred and every country is capable of fear. But I think it's even worse now because we're so global. The influence yeah, is worse. I think that's true. I mean, I think that negative emotions, which our bodies and minds are built to sort of emphasize and prioritize because of evolutionary reasons, that issue becomes amplified by the way media and social media and sort of global forces and our ability to sort of see this playing out in other places. So all of that, I think, makes makes the situation worse. On that, I would agree. I think fear is a powerful thing. And yet we sometimes mistake the idea of protecting ourselves from something we're afraid of. And, and, and what that sometimes does is actually make us weaker and more afraid, you know, and that's something I think that as sort of developed countries, if you look at the sort of data around depression and around all kinds of things, the more connected, the wealthier, the more comfortable we become, the more we retreat from challenges, the more we let fear define us. No, we build a yeah. fortress around us with money and wealth and affluence is yeah. what we do, right? Okay, so let's take COVID, for example, first lockdown, and you were here for that, and that came very soon after the, the bushfires. And I really felt that that was the right approach. I felt that we were going in the right direction. We were keeping COVID at bay. We closed the borders. We introduced hotel quarantine. And I was feeling like it was a real success. But over time, I have noticed that it feeds into our xenophobia. I think that I'm now worried about what that is doing to us as a country, particularly with the state borders, which must be so alien to you. 
No, it is. I mean, I just recently traveled to WA oh, gee. Um, for oh, lucky. some stories. <laughs> I know. Well, but I, I did. I had to do it through Howard Springs quarantine. The only way that I could wow. go from Sydney to Perth was to go to Darwin and sit in quarantine for two weeks. And I, I wrote a piece there about quarantine and raising the question of whether or not this is becoming permanent and tying it to that history. Quarantine has always been politicized. It's always been about keeping people out and fear of the possibility of infection from somebody you don't know or you consider an outsider. And meanwhile, Australia is now building permanent structures. And this is generally being celebrated. But I am not sure that Australia is actually thinking deeply enough about who's going to be the people who end up being quarantined and whether or not it's going to be fair or just. So I share your concerns. I think those are things that Australia really needs to watch out for as it moves forward. You know, and what I think is heartbreaking is a lot of this didn't necessarily need to be there. Some of these additional border controls really make Australia, you know, an outlier in the world. And and I don't know that they've made it significantly safer <laughs> in, in, in all kinds of ways. You know, that said, I think it's important to make a distinction between the political class in Australia and the people. And I do still think that the Australian people are doing everything they can to keep as many people safe as possible. And I think that's quite admirable. And I think the political class tends to go beyond what the people of Australia often actually want to play into fear, to do whatever it needs to be done for political expediency. And I sometimes I'm not sure if Australia should be judged based on the politicians or the people. You know, in this book and in general, I choose to sort of prioritize the reactions and the culture of the people because I think it's stronger and I think it's a better reflection of the country at large. I love that. I love that. I don't think I've ever looked at this country that way because some of the things I worry about, I, I mean, I know I've said this very often on this podcast, is I feel as though John Howard introduced hatred in this country. You know, Tampa is a particular example. But I think too that, you know, it's a political tool now that that's, yeah. a lot of po politicians have taken that up. And it does seep into day-to-day -day life. I don't know if it's as separate as you say. You know, because I, I live in the inner west, for example, I'm not, you know, enjoying the beach every day. I'm not enjoying the, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people here suffer for financially, suffering for all sorts of reasons during COVID. But again, I see that the, uh, that the tool that the government has pulled out is, again, you know, keeping everybody separate and keeping people out of the country. The, the state separateness is a, another problem. Oh. It's another layer of but you I don't know, know how even, we get even, over even this is Even this is deeply <laughs> historical. In 1881... If you had cholera, you were stopped on the train from Sydney to Melbourne. And if you didn't have a scar that showed you'd been inoculated, you were turned around. So, oh, wow. you know, these separations in Australia are pretty deep. And, and, and you know, it's a big country. And so to some degree, it's only possible because of, of the geography of the place. But, but you know, and I, I do think that there are lots of questions to be raised. But, you know, I had a conversation recently with a South Sudanese guy who I wrote about four years ago who coaches a basketball team out in Blacktown. And I was asking him how he's dealing with the lockdown and everything. And he's delivering food to the community. He's working with the police. He's encouraging people to get vaccinated. And it's working. And to me, you know, even as he's skeptical and worried about what Australia's approach to these communities are and what their approach to immigration is, he still feels like he's living out the best part of what it means to be Australian and doing what he can. And so, you know, Australia does a pretty good job of integrating people in the values, even as publicly they're telling them, you know, no, you're not always welcome or you're not good enough or whatever the case may be. So there's a paradox in the way I think Australia deals with outsiders in general. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, you know, I think we're playing a bit of a game here. I'm the Australian and you're the American. And you're talking <laughs> yeah. Australia and I'm not. I want to touch on one more thing in, in terms of, um, of politics. In my darker moments, I think that we could have become something else. I think we could have been because, you know, our, our love of coal, for instance, you know, our love or our not love of the environment. I mean, we love the great outdoors, but we don't treat it as we should. And I often think, how did we become this country that really was, that in a way is just interested in money and wealth and inquiring wealth and having you know, the best house on the street and, you know, having the greatest mortgage and, you know, and, and that saddens me sometimes, you know, that, that makes, I just feel that we could have been even better. I totally agree. That On that one, I agree with, you know, I think, I think in terms of money and class and the way that that's changed Australian society, it's one of the third rails that Australians have not really grappled with. You know, that my, my wife studied here in the 90s um, oh, as a university student. Yeah. Yeah. And so when we moved here, you know, she was struck by how much it's changed since then. And, you know, I've had interesting conversations, I think, to some degree, Richard Flanagan's new novel, which is sort of a climate change novel, which well, I reviewed at the time. Right. It was great. great, but I think it's part of what's so great about it is it's really about class. It's really mm-hmm. about the changing values of a country that's become very wealthy and to what extent it's going to hold on to that sense of community in place. And I think those are really in danger in Australia. I mean, you know, I think that there there is a sort of atomization that happens when all you care about is money and wealth and your property prices. And, you know, while I think Australia is in a much healthier place than the United States in a lot of ways, you know, I think it's a risk of losing some of the values that me as an outsider have come to see as really important and, and valuable. And, and it saddens me, too. And I hope that some of the things that I read about in this book are things that actually people are able to recognize a little bit more and build on. You know, I think Australia, sadly, isn't a place that's great at building on its strengths. <laughs> it's a place that tends to kind of not really contemplate some of those deeper things and some of those deeper challenges and and sometimes chooses the easier path forward. But I really hope that that's something that can change. I mean, I do think that it's a country that is remarkably adaptable and pragmatic when it wants to be. Um, whether you look at guns or healthcare or so many other things in terms of policy. So my hope is that this is something that can change and that it's it's able to turn on a dime much more quickly than some other countries. Okay. You're making me feel better about Australia. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's fine. I, you know, I, I hope so. I feel I feel pretty happy to be here. So No, I know flaws. that. <laughs> it it absolutely the book has a sense of that entirely. I want to talk about compliance. I've been very 
surprised about how compliant Australians have been during COVID. Really surprised, actually. And I think we might get to 80% vaccination, which will be, you know, one of the few countries in the world to get there. I think it's going to go even higher. You know, I mean, I think... you really? I do. I do. I I think that the compliance... I mean, part of it is that we're all... So many of us are, you know, stuck, trapped with nothing to do but try to get a vaccine. It's one of the only things you can do outside your house at this point. (laughs) But... um, It's an algae. Yeah, exactly. But, But I think, you know... Australians seem to be very conflicted about this issue of compliance, you know, where they acknowledge that that's the case. They know that the sort of myth of the larrikin and being this rebel isn't really reflective of the country at large. And they're both proud and repulsed by it, from what I can tell. (laughs) Um, But as an American, you know, again, I sort of say, well, what's the alternative? If the alternative is people saying, well, it doesn't matter if I might have COVID or if I'm unvaccinated and I, you know, bring down the healthcare system by catching COVID because I'm an individual and I have freedom. Well, that's not an alternative that I think is is healthier than a, a heavy degree of compliance. And so, you know, and I think that there's there's a compliance that is reveals a sort of consensus, you know, which is basically in terms of the COVID stuff, would I love lockdown to end? Tomorrow, absolutely. Do I think it should end? No, probably not. And not so, yeah. yeah, there's a desire. So there, there actually is a remarkable consensus, I think, underlying the sort of debates that are happening around this stuff. Mm. Do you know, I tell my friends, and I think they're sick of hearing this, my American friends, because I'm in constant contact with them, that Australia is a police state, that New South Wales is becoming a police state, that you get a ticket for sitting on the park bench eating a pie, or you, you know, have you had a pie? Yes, I'm a huge pie fan. Yeah, yeah are you kidding? Fan. I've tried. I feel like as part of my citizenship test, I'm gonna need to know cuisine. So yeah, right. yeah, okay. Pies. So I think sometimes I feel as though we're over policed, and you touch on that in the book. Yeah, I do think that's the case. I mean, I think that the risk of having too much compliance is there's not enough pressure to make the law and order system actually reflect what's best for the most people, or in the case of the pandemic science, for example. There's not a whole lot of support that says that curfews actually help suppress infection, but we've got curfews all over Australia. There's not a lot of science that says that, you know, cracking down on a bunch of moms having coffee outdoors when the wind is blowing, you know, is supported by the best epidemiological science. And when you have a country that's so compliant, you don't have enough people saying, well, hey, wait a second, that's that's not acceptable to us. Like it's fine to obey the rules, but at some point, you know, that goes too far. I do think there are lots of people actually who do raise those questions, but there's not enough to actually change the policy. And it's one of the things that I do find really striking is the trust in government in Australia is so high that even when the government goes beyond what is reasonable, people still generally accept it and say, oh, well, they must have a reason. And and this is the part where I put on my American hat again and say that Australia, in my view, is the most secretive and, you know, democracy in the world. Yeah. And so to me, that's one of the fundamental problems is that people are not demanding more explanation from their government, more justification for the actions that they take that restrict people's freedoms that are, are in no way a threat. And so I do think that there's a real risk of it becoming more and more of a police state. I've seen that in the four years I've been here. And I'm not totally sure what you can do about that. <laughs> you because know, you know what, I, where I think that problem comes from, I think there's there's a bit of a paradox in a way that voting is compulsory in, in this country, as you know, but a lot of people don't care. Right, right. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, I think sometimes is for the most part, life works. 
So, you know, Australia has solved a lot of the problems that the United States, for example, has not solved, whether it's guaranteed retirement income or, you know, health care or guns. And so I think Australians are in the luxurious position of even if you ignore politics, it mostly turns out OK. There are exceptions to that, and it's not by any means a fair system for everyone. But I think that apathy and that willingness to just say, ah, well, she'll be right, mate, whatever the police need to do, they can do, is a reflection of a sort of complacency that comes from a mostly successful democratic government, one that's healthier, frankly, than a lot of other democracies. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I'm, gonna, I'm going to need to talk to you every day. This has just <laughs> created a big problem for me. Hey, Liz, I want to talk about the US a little bit. How's Joe Biden going? Uh, you know, he seems to have lowered the temperature uh, in the United States, which to me strikes me as success on a on a societal level. It's an enormous challenge for him to get his agenda through. I think all the divisions that President Trump reflected are still very much a part of American life. And I still feel like the fever hasn't broken, that the mm-hmm. country hasn't sort of found its way back to some sense of unified mission. And so... I am far from hardened enough about sort of where America is. This is where my sense of pessimism and despair comes in. Mm. Do you know, I think the infrastructure bill, I think America looking inwards and looking at, because one of the things that struck me about the US, and I got used to it over the years, but really how old and rundown it was, you know, New York, San Francisco, (laughs) and and this is, it's the same, but it's not the same. You know, what happened here after the GFC, uh, Julia Gillard introduced that building. I can't remember what it was called, but, you know, started to invest quite heavily in, you know, in government subsidised building to, you know, build up buildings, but get work going, get construction going. And, you know, because often it's the core of the economy. And I think in a way that is what America needs at the moment, because one, it employs people and a lot of those people that have been decimated in terms of work, but it does actually bring some money into the economy. And I think that if that works, I think there's going to be a little bit of hope for that country. Yeah, I think so. I think the infrastructure thing is it's just so long overdue, right? It is. But but to me, infrastructure, if you think of it, like the whole country is like a bridge that hasn't been fixed, you know, in 50 years. And, and And the process of democracy is also that way. I mean, the way voting works is antiquated. The way, you know, districts are are defined is antiquated. There's There are so many things that make the whole country feel like it's this 1950s Chevrolet that, like, is pretending yes. it's like a brand new Rolls Royce. And Americans need to really grapple with the fact that, that it's falling apart and they need to fix a lot of things. It's physically falling apart as well. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And, and yeah. that's so it's possible that. Once you fix some of the infrastructure, it can create yeah. some momentum. It creates for hope. jobs and it creates hope. And seeing your community being reconstructed, I think, creates that. Um, speaking of voter suppression, when I first t- heard about that, which was a few years back in the States, I, I just can't believe that that's part of a democracy. Now, that in oh, itself is fundamentally not democratic, would you say? Oh, it's completely anti democratic. And it's yeah. the idea that it's possible simply because some people want to be able to do it is stunning to the world. And I think to anyone who's sort of lived or worked in any other kind of democracy. And I think Americans have just come to accept it because they don't look abroad nearly often enough and to recognize and that their country can learn from other places, perhaps. Uh, and that what is acceptable in the United States doesn't have to be acceptable and that it can change. And so, yeah, I agree. I think that it's, it's a stunning sort of just, it, it's a sad and, and disturbing development. Again, 
not disconnected from history. If you look at the way the vote was suppressed for the black community before, you know, with the Jim Crow laws, with after after Reconstruction, I mean, the country has a long history of trying to pick and choose who who gets to vote. So that's part of the reason why it's tolerated, but it doesn't make it right. I mean, it, it's astounding to me that if you don't, the only way you can get in is if you stop people from voting. I mean, just listen to how ridiculous that sounds. <laughs> I know. No, no, I know. It's 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 very hard to fathom. It's yeah, very hard yeah. to fathom. Okay. All right. I want to talk about the New York Times and why you guys came to Australia. Yeah, good question. So I was an editor in New York. I'd been a correspondent for most of my career, and they had started a push to expand globally in a whole bunch of places. And this was the, the Times wasn't doing as well at that point as it is now. And the idea was that for our business to really thrive for the next 50 years, we need to build an audience all over the world, not just in the United States. And so they identified a handful of markets where they felt like they had some readers and not enough coverage. And Australia was one of them. And just sort of randomly, I got asked to come do it. I'd done a bunch of entrepreneurial things for the Times in the past and was eager to kind of get out outside New York again. And so I got the lucky shoulder tap and uh, it's it's been great. I mean, I think the Times took us a while to sort of figure out what works here. Uh, it took us a while to figure out what kind of thing we could add to the marketplace and what our mission was. And to some degree, I think we ended up landing on something that Sam Sifton, the food editor, told me when he came to visit, which is that, oh, well, it's simple, Damien. You just have to reveal Australia to itself and to the world. Uh, and so that's a bit of the mission statement is to really create coverage that is for a global audience that helps kind of put Australia in perspective, but that also hopefully reveals elements of the country to the people who are here as well. Whenever I ask Australians, well, what should the New York Times be doing in Australia? The one thing they always tell me is just keep adding perspective. Don't do it the way everyone else does it. Find a way to help add perspective. So yeah. that's what we try to do. I mean, I really feel we don't have enough independent media here, and I'm sure you'd agree with that. I mean, it's everything. Is I do agree. Although, I, again, this is me being an optimist. I feel like the media coverage has gotten better in the past few years yeah. than it was when I first got here. But I agree. It's not independent enough. There's a whole bunch of flaws in the way that it's done, I would argue. But, you know, we're happy to be here and to be contributing our little piece of the puzzle. Mm. No, we're very happy. to. Well, I'm very happy to have you. Do you think it was a post or, well, not post uh, Trump, but during Trump, that it was Trump that got Australians thinking bigger? Do you think if you guys had tried to come here 10 years prior, would that have worked? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, I think that the interest in Trump from Australians was intense, just like it was from everyone all over the world. And I think there was good reason for that. It was yeah. not only was it an enormous drama, it was an extremely high stakes drama with a country that has an impact all over the world in which no one really knew how it was going to end or where it was going to go. So, of course, we all had to pay attention no matter where you live. So I do think that that definitely helped. But I think we've also found that you know, Australians are interested in a lot of the things that the New York Times does beyond politics. You know, they read our books coverage heavily. They, you know, um, I do are food. interested in yeah, I do food, food. The food stuff. Love it. The food well. app's great. Yeah. Love it. Yep. So, so there's lots of things that I think we do that are just particular to us that that um, that seem to work for Australians. I often think that Australia punches above its weight, <laughs> and I often 
you know, I, I'm a huge podcast listener. I listen to the New York Times daily, but I listen to lots of other things. And I was listening to Michael Lewis being interviewed the other day to talk about his book. I think it's called Premonition. And somehow, and this wasn't why I was listening to it, I was listening to to hear him speak. Uh, also, I'd heard that his daughter had died, which is really tragic. Yeah, heartbreaking. Wanted, yeah. It's so tragic. And I just wanted to hear his approach on it. But anyway, the first 20 minutes of the podcast ended up being they're talking about Australia and how COVID, and it was such a yeah. surprise to me, which because that's not why I was listening to it. And sometimes I, anyway, there's lots of American podcasts that I listen to, and then all of a sudden Australia comes into it. And I think for such a small populace, well, not geographically small, but, you know, 25 million small, sometimes I think we punch above our weight. Do you think that's accurate? I think, that, I, I think that's true, and it's interesting because I also have noticed it in increasing in the past years. I mean, mm -hmm. I would like to say that the New York Times takes a little credit for that since, you know, we've put Maybe. a lot more Australia yeah. coverage out in the world. But I also think what's happening is the world is starting to see Australia beyond its tourism marketing campaigns. It's starting to see it yes. as a more nuanced place, which, you know, has interesting stories and lessons to be learned and cautionary tales and everything else that any interesting country has. So I do think that it's become a country of, of much greater interest around the world. I, I would be curious to know if 10 or 20 years ago, it was still punching above its weight in terms mm -hmm. of its impact. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think you could you could probably find a few inflection points, you know, where it's in, its interest sort of increased, you know, whether it was after Port Arthur or you know, and with the issue of guns or maybe during the Iraq war as it sort of was dealing with, you know, the more of a global position in that world. But it's, I also think to some degree it's, it's Hollywood. It's all the creative Australians that have sort of made success, you know, internationally. And so, yeah, I think it's a great time to be doing journalism in and about this part of the world. I mean, yeah, I think that I think the whole center of gravity is moving in this direction. I think you're right. I think it's also Australian writers and Australian journalists as well. Yeah. It's had an impact. Um, tell true. me, now, are you here to stay or are you just? Uh, you know, at least for now, I mean, I, as far <laughs> yeah. as I can, we're, you know, we're honestly like part of what the book, I don't get into this too directly, but part of what the book chronicles for me is a bit of a shift from being kind of a professional expat to feeling a little bit more like an immigrant and mm. feeling a bit more like I'm really saying goodbye to the United States and, and really investing in Australia. You know, I mean, we're applying for citizenship. Oh, wow. um, you know, I don't have any plans to go. I feel like there's a lot more work to be done. And, um, you know, living in that space between being Australian and not and trying to sort of understand the place as both an insider and an outsider feels really valuable. I feel really lucky to be doing it. And I'm having a great time doing it. And Australians, as you probably know better than me, they require a bit of a commitment before they really open up. Mm -hmm. And I feel like being here for years, I'm just starting to like get them to trust me enough to really kind of tell me what's really going on half the time. And so hope is a strange argument to make yeah. right now, but yeah. still I'm going to tell you, I genuinely believe that you maybe feel better, you know, because you know what yeah. it's like. You get you start to feel <laughs> oh, dark about your own country, you know. It's oh, fantastic. I do know. But yeah. I still think in three in three months, I, my prediction is that Australia's gonna come out of this dark period feeling filled with air again, feeling yeah. like they saved more lives than almost any other democracy, and that things are gonna be fine. So it's gonna be a great summer. Thank you. <laughs> Oh, I'm so happy to chat with you. Damien Cave, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au.
This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.